right, so like Pastor John said, I'm Annie, and uh, I'm here because I've felt God's call to be in ministry, and um, I want to thank you, your church, you all have taken John and I on for the summer, uh, and let us kind of experience a little bit more of what that's like, which is awesome, and um, let us preach, which is even more awesome. Uh, but what John didn't tell you is that my dad's actually a pastor, uh, so it's cool for me to be up here, you know, kind of thinking about him, and um, also intimidating. Uh, it was funny, I gave him a call this week on the phone, and I, I asked him if I could tell you guys that he's a pastor. Uh, not because he would mind, because he totally wouldn't, that's public knowledge, but um, because gr growing up, I have had a lot of stories told about me in church, <laughs> because of being a pastor's kid, and our rule was that he always had to ask me if he was going to say anything remotely, even like someone I know who might be my daughter, or, you know, something like, you know, really remote, I... I needed him to ask me permission, and I would get very angry if he didn't. So I called him and was kind of like, so, Dad, I'm doing this talk. Like, can I mention you? And he was laughed. It was really cute. Um, and he would be here today, but he has his own sermon to preach, um, and I probably wouldn't let him come anyways. But um, my brother's here, which is really nice of him to come because he had to wake up very early. So to drive down here. Um, but we're in the middle of this sermon series called String Theory, um, and it's about how worship is an integral part of the way that we were made and the way we were designed. Um, and today, I want to talk about the Psalms. The Psalms do a lot of praising God, do a lot of worshiping. Um, but what do we do with the Psalms which seem less than enthusiastic and depressing even. Um, what do we do when we come across passages which make us uncomfortable? Or the where are you God parts of scripture? And how, how is that worship? Um, in talking about the Psalms, I have a quote here from John Calvin. It's kind of long, track with me says, what various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury, talking about the Psalms, the Psalms of the treasury, um, it were difficult to find words to describe. I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. I like this quote because... Calvin puts it so eloquently, and what he basically says is this, there is something about the Psalms. Um, Christians come back to them again and again, non-Christians even will read the Psalm. I think it's safe to say that Psalm 23 is probably the one, one of the most quoted passages of scripture. Uh, he calls them an anatomy of the soul. People identify with the Psalms there is something accessible about them. Which is strange, right? I mean, they're Hebrew poetry, written approximately 2,500 to 3,500 years ago by various different people. These things don't seem to lend themselves towards accessibility. 
I'm an English major, and we read a lot of poetry in our classes, which I love, but sometimes it's really hard for me to even understand poetry written in our time today, in my language, in my culture, much less you know, Hebrew poetry of a long time ago. So what is it about the Psalms? What makes them so popular? And what do they have to do with worship, or what do they have to say about it? Uh, today I want to look at Psalm 22 to get a glimpse into that. Um, if, you, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, at the very beginning of the chapter, if you look... There's a little preface. If you squint your eyes, you might be able to read it. It says, to the choir master. So, for a choir, right? For worship. You see, the Psalms had every, everything to do with worship. They were a part of the individual and corporate worship of the people of Israel, the Jewish nation. They were collected, passed down, and sung in church. I, but it, it wasn't called church, synagogue, or whatever they called it. Um, but they were used in the formal worship, their festivals, their calendar, kind of like today we have uh, hymns, even occasion-specific songs like Christmas songs or Easter songs. And this reminds me that the whole worshiping to God together thing, you know, what we call church, this has been happening for a long time. Uh, a lot longer than any of us. And sometimes, sometimes I forget that. I get caught up in the idea that worship is about me and God. And it is about me and God. Worship is about our relationship. But it's not only about that. We're joining in something a lot larger than ourselves, our own church, or even our own time. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, I have been living in Santa Barbara. Uh, which I grew up in San Diego, so I've got to meet there a lot uh, more Christians from a lot of different backgrounds, and I've learned this word, liturgy, which definitely wasn't in my vocabulary until a couple years ago, Um, and if anything, it sounded churchy and boring and old and not something that I wanted to deal with. Liturgy, though, uh, is a set, just a set order of how the church as a community goes through the scriptures and conducts services. Sometimes there's a call and response portion, sometimes a reciting of the Christian creeds. And I've come to appreciate it, uh, even though it's not what I'm used to. Because it reminds me of what we were just talking about, that we're not alone in this, that we're joining in the rest of the world, Christians from throughout history, really, that worship is not only a vertical experience, but a horizontal one as well. And if I'm not feeling it, then maybe I should sing for the person next to me. Because part of worship is about community. Um, And the Psalms, just by virtue of being what they are, they remind me of this too. Psalm 22 is a specific type of psalm. It's a lament. Laments are identified, not very surprisingly at all, by their mood. You know, the psalmist will have a complaint either about himself and his own actions, what he's doing, or about other people, which will be labeled enemies, or sometimes about God himself, when God seems to have let them down. And this psalm, specific psalm, Psalm 22, begins with that last sentiment. 
uh, in verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And this, this makes me pause and think, are we even allowed to say these things at church? I mean, this is like against everything that we teach. You know, God does not forsake us. God listens to us. God answers our prayers. That's what we believe. But we have the Bible, and in it, in the middle, we have, you know, Israel's hymnal, per se, and the entire people of God saying in unison, why have you forsaken me? You do not answer. Uh, Why are you so far? And to me, this is like, isn't this contradictory of the rest of Scripture? Um, But here is where context is super important. You see, this is a poem. Personally, I love poetry. I love the power it has to speak to my emotions. Uh, For some of you, that may be music or photography or painting or whatever else. Uh, And I think the Psalms have that power too, which is why people gravitate towards them. Uh, They speak to us. Uh, Listen to this later in the chapter, verse 14 says, My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt. I don't know what that is. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And when I read that, I'm like, imagery, right? You can feel him. You can feel it. Uh, my tongue sticks. And that is somehow supposed to be worship. Um, But it's important to remember, too, that not only is this a poem, but like we said before, it's a lament. Um, There are other genres of poetry, I mean, of psalms, that that scholars identify. There's seven, um, and not all of them express the anguish that laments do. There's kingship, lament, that's the one we're in, praise and hymns, those are together, thanksgiving, remembrance, wisdom, and confidence. And I love this. I love that it shows people in all different sorts of moods and attitudes approaching God. The way I look at it, if I open to one psalm and I'm not feeling that at the moment, I can turn to the next one and it might speak to me. Um, But, okay, okay. So if you haven't guessed it by now, I'm a very feelings-oriented person. Uh, I get the whole... Let's talk about our feelings. Yeah, the Psalms can speak to me in that way. If you want coffee and a good cry, I'm right there with you. Um, But I realize I'm way over here on this end of the spectrum. There's some people who are not, like a very dear brother of mine, who may be more inclined to say, emotions, what are those? (laughs) Or, um, yeah, crying, we don't do that. And for those of you in that category over here, I don't want you to miss the truth of this. That the Psalms are not so much about feelings, although they are, and that's great, and that's part of it, and I love it, but not so much about feelings as they are about being honest. You know, the psalmist here is saying, God, to be truthful with you, I don't see your hand in this. 
And God, I prayed, but nothing happened. What I learned most from the Psalms is that God desires our honesty. You know, don't lie. God is the only one that you can't lie to. And I do lie. I lie all the time. Why? Because I've bought into the misconception that Christians are happy all of the time. And if I'm really following God, then my face will show it, so smile. Sometimes I think that worship is a certain prescribed set of feelings, usually happy ones. But isn't that distancing God? You know, not showing our true selves, putting on a face, that's a way to distance other people, and it's a way to distance God. And when I'm tempted to do this, when we are tempted to do that, the psalmist comes to our aid and gives us words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Sometimes I wonder if we do this enough, a voice that. I mean, it's awkward Um, I'm thinking of times where I see someone who I haven't seen for a while. For me, that'd be a friend from high school. Um, Maybe we're at a Christmas party, and she asks me, how's school going? And you just know she doesn't want to hear, yeah, things are actually really hard right now. Um, I'm not even sure where I'm supposed to be. Uh, finances are tight, I'm having these friend problems, like she's in a dark place, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to communicate with her. No, she doesn't, she just wants to hear, you know, check in, see that I'm doing okay, and get credit for caring. So I tell her, yeah, I'm enjoying my classes. And we want to ask David in the Psalms, you know, how's the whole faith thing going? And we want to hear, yeah, God is good, hallelujah, amen. And we don't want to hear, well, yeah, I don't even know where God is right now. That's not what we want to hear. And it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable to be that honest um, with ourselves, with other people, especially in a group. But how you know, beautiful to be able to say, yeah, this is what's going on. And for a community, too, to recognize that. Not only that I'm in pain, but I can see and recognize that you're suffering, too. And even more, Christ said this. You may recognize it, you know, what he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if Christ said this, then surely we can. And on a different note, if Christ says that, and if we feel that way, then in our laments, we are experiencing a little bit of his life. We understand him better identifying with Christ. And this slips in my mind all the time, but Christianity is about getting to know Jesus more than just joining a club or doing good things. It's about getting to know God, and our pain brings us a little bit of that understanding. Suddenly, You and Christ, you guys have something in common. So what are we afraid of, right? That God can't handle our laments? God's been dealing with people for a lot 
a long time, and I need to remember that, you know, this is not the first time that he's dealt with this. And that is exactly what the psalmist does next. If you go back to Psalm 22, verse 3 says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. So he goes back to his history, right? His nation's history says this is how God has worked. And then he goes back to his personal history, too. In verse 10, he says, From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So I've known you since I was a baby, since I was a child. God. And then the psalmist bookends this with talking about the future. Uh, in verse 27, notice the future tense. You know, big picture kind of thinking. He says, all the ends of the earth will remember the lo- and turn to the Lord. And uh, verse 30, future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So in the midst of this lament comes a voice full of hope. And that's confusing to me uh, because he has started with this charge against God, you know, saying, God, you have forsaken me. And if you look in the middle, he talks about how other people are against him. He says he's scorned by everyone and despised by the people. And in verse 12, he says, many bulls surround me. And I don't know if that's literal bulls, but I know, I'm guessing the circumstances seem to be against him. So you have God against him, you've got people against him, and he's got his circumstances against him. And then we have, you know, throughout it, woven in these pieces of perspective. Hopeful perspective. God has come through in the past, and despite what I'm experiencing now, we will praise him in the future. Dr. Sorry, uh, Tremper Longman III, an Old Testament scholar, writes about the Psalms and says, Since a lament predominantly reflects a downcast mood, it is surprising to note that all laments include some expression of trust in God. And I say, yes, Dr. Longman, that is surprising. Um, does that seem contradictory to you? Suspicious? I mean, to me, it seems like either he's not really that upset or he's not really trusting in God. He must be lying about one of them. But I think there's a better way to read this text. Verse 19 says, But you, Lord, do not be far from me, You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Or in the ESV, the last part says, Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Um, And this is great. He's giving God a direct address. He's saying, you, comma, God. And then he gives him imperative commands. Do not be far far from me. Come quickly. You can feel the urgency in his voice. And who is he urgently and directly talking to? He calls God his help. And he doesn't lie. He's saying, I need help, and I'm not getting it. But even in that, he recognizes who God is. He says, my help, come help me. And the point is this. In the very act of crying to God, no matter what you're saying, whether you're complaining, rejoicing, crying, you know, happy, anything, no matter what, that in itself is an expression of trust in God. The psalmist 
isn't walking away, right? He chooses, despite his circumstances, to turn to God, you know, despite what he has to say, to turn to God in prayer. We can all lament to ourselves or lament to other people, but do we and can we lament to God? Because definitionally, when you enter into dialogue with God, you're entering into a relationship with him. And that's what he wants, right? Verse 26 says, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. He wants us to keep seeking. Because in worship, even lamenting worship, you're not turning your back. You're still on talking terms, right? It's still worth it to talk to him about it. So choosing to address God is an expression of faith and trust. And the psalmist is not being fake happy. I can't say that enough. His trust evidences itself not in fake optimism, but in the fact that he brings his thoughts, his feelings, his life before the throne room. And if you look at it the opposite way, the opposite is true. You know, if you're not being honest with God, that shows an actual distrust. You know, you've seen this in other people, right? Overconfidence can sometimes be an indicator, surest indicator of insecurity. Overcompensation. Um, sometimes overcompensation, sometimes resignation. Think of the difference between someone who has hope and is willing to go to God when they're upset, and someone who has lost hope, and because they have lost hope, puts on a smile because there's nothing else to do but make the best of it. So happy and trusting or faith, and they, they don't have to go together. And when I think about our history, when I think about the big picture like the psalmist does here, and the host of witnesses who come before me and the host of witnesses who will come after me, I relax a little bit. I feel the freedom to be a little bit more honest. And I, and I feel the freedom to let other people be honest too because there's a long history of trust. So I actually think that this psalm holds together uh, really well. It fits within scripture. It holds integrity. And in a challenging way. The psalmist is able to recognize who God is even though when he, he doesn't see what God is doing. And that's hard. It's, it's why we need each other. But sometimes we need to be able to ask, God, why are you so far? Are we the kind of people who can be that honest? Are we the kind of people who invite that honesty in others? Because ultimately, the Psalms do not give us an answer to our problems. But they touch upon something which is part of the very way we were made to worship. They remind us of our place in history with God's people. 
They give us a voice when we need to lament. They help us be honest. And they make us turn. 